Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, a new podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller, and today we're contemplating the zombie apocalypse with Greg Garrett and asking... What does living with the living dead mean? How can we differentiate ourselves from these monsters? What is it that makes us human? What is it that elevates us from this sort of base level of conspicuous consumption and and mindlessness? Greg Garrett is professor of English at Baylor University in Texas and a highly regarded cultural commentator. His latest book is entitled Living with the Living Dead, which is not a bad description of this time in our culture. Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead are the two most popular TV shows on the planet, and there are innumerable other zombie films, books, comics, games and apps which have become wildly successful. Zombies have even found their way into the academy in the form of zombie studies courses. Greg's book is not another collection of zombie trivia, film history, or even a manual for would-be zombie hunters. He's interested in asking deeper questions about our zombie mania, as his subtitle, The Wisdom of the Zombie Apocalypse, makes clear. Why are zombies so popular? What do they tap into? What aspects of being human, what moral issues, do stories about zombies throw into sharp relief? Greg's is a book about zombies, with Friedrich Nietzsche in the index, Nietzsche, who wrote, Beware that when fighting monsters, you do not become a monster, which could be a line from a zombie film. When Greg spoke to me this week from Texas, I started by asking, did our current wave of zombie nightmares arise from the aftermath of 9-11? Yeah, the, the cultural critical consensus was already there actually before I began the book. And that was that this is largely a post-9-11 phenomenon where we are reacting to the perception of widespread threats, you know, things coming at us from every direction. And depending on your particular zombie of choice, they are shambling toward us in slow motion or they are running toward us so much faster than is actually fair. But the interesting thing about the book itself was that the research led me to discover that this is not purely a post 9-11 phenomenon. It's at flashpoints in history where people feel like the world is full of menace. And what actually led me here was I was reading uh, a book about the Middle Ages by the popular historian Barbara Tuchman. 
in which she talked about you know, sort of all of the threats kind of revolving around the time of the Black Death. And I was reading that paragraph where she enumerated all of the things that were going on, and I just thought to myself, well, if we change Black Death for Zika or Ebola or your, your plague of the moment, everything else on this list is what we are addressing. So to see that during that time, that death and that corpses were sort of omnipresent in art and literature and funerary monuments and things like that, kind of sparked the idea that in some strange sense, zombies and these representations of the dead are actually kind of a, a species defense mechanism against the very real threat of death that we have perceived at various times in our history. You mentioned the Black Death there, and you, you mention in the book, you talk about the aftermath of World War I, you talk about those shocking images and stories from the extermination camps after World War II. But what is different with this latest zombie phenomenon is that it's primarily an entertainment, isn't it? So we're not putting it into necessarily high art, but we're putting it on, you know, in cable TV series and comic books. Yeah, in comics and, and popular novels and, and apps on your phone where if you're not running fast enough on your evening jog, you hear the noise of zombies in your headphones. There is, I think, that sort of accelerated phenomenon that comes to us because not only are we perceiving these threats as people have perceived them throughout history, but we perceive them these days pretty much around the clock. I don't know if you have news alerts on your phone, but sadly, I, I do. And so multiple times during the day, my phone goes off in my pocket, and I will reluctantly look at it because almost every time I pick it up, it's bad news. So there is a mass shooting, as there has been here in Texas a couple of days ago, or uh, this or that, or our president has ratcheted up international tensions in some startling way, or you know something has happened in Paris or in Istanbul or what have you. And I think one of the things that sort of accounts for the omnipresence of zombies in the current culture is simply that we are more aware of the threats than we have ever been before. You know, people have always killed each other in uh, religious spats. And uh, there has always been economic unrest and political unrest and all of these other things. But it has never before been delivered to us around the clock into our own pockets. Nonetheless, do you think there's something archetypal that the zombie taps into? I was really interested. You describe in the book a dream that you had. I think you, you may even have said it was a recurring nightmare in the early days of researching this book. And it wasn't just of being caught by the zombies. It wasn't just of being devoured. The word you used, now that was a really interesting word, was assimilation. And that, to me, suggests a loss of self and a turning into something alien and other. Yeah, I think there is a very powerful archetype in that respect. Putting aside all of the other things about extinction and individual death, what happens when we are attacked by zombies is that we are no longer ourselves. And I think that there is something frightening about that. And it's, it's taken up in lots of other story ideas. Uh, I can think of several recurring villains from Doctor Who, for example, who are assimilators. And uh, I think of the Star Trek villains, the Borg, and there is something incredibly frightening about the idea that we're not, no longer going to be who we are. I have a loved one who is in the middle stages of Alzheimer's. And that is a terrifying thing for me, as I know it is for him, that everything we have been and everything we have known and all that we remember is 
is going to vanish in some way. And, and in some ways, that is more terrifying than any other part of this story for me, uh, because it's a real life story. It's something that actually does happen to us. And would it be fair, Greg, to say that you're not so much interested in trying to identify particular stimuli such as international terrorism or, or viruses or whatever, as actually interrogating the human response to the zombie? Because in a way, you could say zomb zombies, they don't change much, they don't do much, they're, a, they're an oncoming threat that comes in waves. But what is actually interesting, I, I mean, I, I, when I was reading the book, I jotted down, what is actually interesting is what comes between the zombie attacks, isn't it? It actually is. And one of the early things that sort of shaped this for me, because early on I was looking at some of the cultural readings of zombies themselves. And that's fascinating enough because there are, are things that can be explored there about our humanity and the sort of uh, connections that people make between us and these inhuman monsters. But I had a chance to interview Angela Kang, who's the executive producer and one of the writers for the Walking Dead TV series. And she set me straight very early on. She said, you know, our series is not about zombies. It's about the human beings. It's about the choices they make. It's about what they're willing to do to survive. And in that way, of course, it is much more interesting because that actually places us right in our post-9-11, post-7-7 context of being surrounded by all of these threats. And then what are we willing to do in the face of that? And so in the States just now, we are having ongoing discussions about things that frighten us, about refugees, about immigration, about international terrorism, and the responses that we make to that. Do we build a big, beautiful wall? Do we welcome people who are fleeing from oppression in their own nations? Do we take the small chance that one of those people may be a dangerous person? And in each of these zombie stories, part of the thing that they're wrestling with is, what does human life look like when you are faced with threat? And what are the compromises that you're willing to, to make morally and ethically? And what do those compromises do to you if you make them? Well, I, I thought one of the most interesting sentences in the book that I underlined was about The Walking Dead. And you say, if we do not grapple with our fears, as well as with those who might actually attack us, we are faced with a future dedicated to our new gods of safety and security, with fealty owed to whoever can deliver them. And that seemed to me really to capture the essence of it, because that seems to be the moment that potentially we are in or that we're, we're contemplating, where, where political rhetoric is so much about fear and external threat and meeting that threat with violence. Right. So, you know, let's, let's build a wall or let's withdraw from um, communion or union. And much of my thinking there actually owes much to the uh, American ethicist Scott Bader Say, who is a friend of mine and um, one of the faculty here at the Episcopal Seminary of the Southwest in Austin, where I'm also writer in residence. He wrote a marvelous book about the ethical choices that we made post 9-11 and uh, sort of highlighted those because he's a Christian ethicist in, in the context of the Christian tradition. And the remarkable and sort of startling thing that we notice in that and in many of these zombie stories is that the decisions that people make are often counter to the highest values that they hold. And uh, so one of the examples, I, I talk at some length about Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, and also the film, because there is this ongoing conversation between the father and the son, the two main characters in that novel, 
about whether they are behaving ethically, whether they are carrying the light is the phrase that they use. Are we the good guys is what the, what the boy yeah, asks us. That's another are, recurring theme. Are we still the good guys? And, you know, that is something we aspire to. We want to do the right thing. And in the face of fear, we often close down and, and do the wrong thing. And what the boy says toward the end of the novel, toward the end of the story, is how can we be the good guys if we never help anybody but ourselves? And, of course, in every wisdom tradition that I know about, compassion is front and center. And so that idea that you can help nobody but yourself and still be an ethical being, still be a good guy, is you know, counteractive to those understandings. And that is a, a riveting moment in that book because many of us who are parents or grandparents can imagine ourselves making the same kinds of decisions that the father makes where everything is about protecting the son. He, he says at one point, that's basically my mission from God, to use language from the Blues Brothers film. This is my mission from God. I've been tasked by God to keep you safe. It's the only reason I'm here on the planet. And safety becomes a god for us in that way, and we begin to orient our decisions around that instead of the things that actually make us good guys. In the, the stories, the narratives that you discuss, you see some characters like the father in the road trying really hard to hang on to some kind of value and moral worth and being tested. In other stories, you see characters who are corrupted by the power, by the breakdown of institutions and law and order. And then you see other characters who are kind of, who kind of fulfill themselves in this new landscape. They're, they're able to sort of slough off their previous lives, which were unsatisfactory, and actually become you know, maybe the true selves is putting it too far, but, you know, to, to really actualize themselves within this new landscape. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. What sort of happens in these stories, and I think also in war stories and survival stories, say apocalyptic end of the world kind of stories, is that the moral guardrails that we have on our highway of life are knocked down. And so we see people sort of weaving off the road and into the culvert, and we see people trying desperately to continue steering down the straight and narrow. And as you pointed out, there's the occasional person who has been sort of lounging about in the culvert who suddenly realizes that he or she can actually get up on the highway and begin to traverse a different kind of life than he or she has had before. What Angela Kang said to me about The Walking Dead I think really applies to all of these stories, which is, it's important to realize that the zombies are not the villains in these stories. The human beings who choose to drive off the highway, uh, the governor in the Walking Dead stories, the um, military in 28 Days Later, these people who decide that they're going to take advantage of the situation to exploit other human beings are the true villains. But what I love about these stories is that, as you point out, there's this self-actualization. And I think becoming the selves that they were called to be is not too strong a way to think about it. I was talking uh, with someone the other day about the character of Daryl, who appears from the very first episodes of The Walking Dead. And he is a, a violent survivalist, sort of a caricature of a character in the American South who is proficient with weapons 
and who responds to every threat with violence. And that's how we meet him. But over the course of the now seven seasons of The Walking Dead, he is a person who has turned all of that on his head. And so in that story, in Shaun of the Dead, uh, in the movie Zombieland, which is another of my favorites from uh, the Hollywood versions of the zombie apocalypse, we get a lot of characters who are actually able to respond to the end of the world by becoming better human beings rather than worse human beings. And I know that's what we all hope for ourselves, but to have these characters hold out that hope for us is a, is a really powerful narrative. Your book, Greg, introduced me to a new word. I had never come across eucatastrophe before. Is that Tolkien? Did, did you say that was one of yeah. his coinages? Can, can you say what it is and how, how it comes into the, the, the big picture? Right. And so catastrophe, your listeners will, of course, know. U is the Greek prefix E-U. And from the uh, Tolkien uh, essay on fairy stories, Tolkien talked about how paradoxically the end of the world can actually be a powerful and great impetus toward both characters and the cosmos. So the idea of the eucatastrophe is that terrible things happen and yet good emerges from that. And of course, that's a, a deeply Christian idea, the idea of the end of the world, of um, eschatology in Christian belief, is that you know, however disastrous and catastrophic that event will be, it is part of God's good plans for the cosmos. And what we see in these zombie stories is that Yes, on an individual basis, the zombie apocalypse is a terrible thing because you're going to be very likely you know, eaten or rendered uh, into, uh, into a monster. But for those people who survive and for the culture and community that grows up around that, these things are necessary. And um, toward the end of the book, I actually quote uh, a really wonderful literary short story by the writer Manuel Gonzalez that is set in a shopping mall, sort of like George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, in which the, the narrator says, I think we need these things. If we didn't have them, how would we become the people that we are called to be? So that is the, the really sort of wonderful paradox about this. Uh, the zombie apocalypse is obviously a negative thing for the many, many people who are killed and eaten. But for survivors, for people who are living into the what one of the cultural critics called the cosmic reboot that is engendered by the zombie apocalypse, there is that very real possibility that we can shed some of the things that have held us down. And part of what is involved here is the comparison that from the George Romero movies on has been that at our worst, as human beings, we are mindless consumers. We are, we are no better than zombies. And what would it mean to live into a reality where we are conscious and living for something larger than ourselves? And um, the idea that uh, I sort of come back to is how can we differentiate ourselves from these monsters? What is it that makes us human? What is it that elevates us from this sort of base level of conspicuous consumption and, and mindlessness? And that is something that seems to emerge with many of these heroic characters in the zombie narratives. So would you say that the zombie genre is neither intrinsically pessimistic nor optimistic? To, to use another word that you, you use in the book, it's multivalent. 
Mm. Or it's ambiguous. Yeah, I think it can slant really in either direction. And it often depends on the author. Uh, so some of the Romero films clearly sort of edge toward entropy and disaster. But when you look at uh, some of the more recent films with uh, Shaun of the Dead and with Zombieland, and I am holding out great hope for the final conclusion of Game of Thrones, which at its heart is, strangely enough, a zombie apocalypse story, that some kind of cosmic order is going to be restored. And that not only will individuals become heroic in the context of this of this disaster, but that there will be a you catastrophe. And so I, I think really it is just sort of about two ways of viewing the future in this world full of threat. And we come back again, I think, to some of the political commentary you were talking about earlier. My president, Donald Trump, casts everything in the terms of catastrophe. I myself, both as a person of faith and just as a person, am leaning in the direction of hope. And what I want to see is not that we are doomed, but that because human beings at their hearts are essentially good, which is my ongoing belief against all the evidence, that there is the very real possibility that whatever disasters encompass us at this moment, that we will find a way to become the people that we're called to be. One of the things which readers might find most surprising and also most refreshing about the book, Greg, is the way you bring in faith traditions, wisdom traditions, philosophy, all sorts of writers. You know, you, the, the, the epigraph with which you begin the book comes from the Old Testament. And, mm. and I was astonished by how much like a zombie apocalypse that, that quote sounded. So it's, it's, um, it's fascinating where you try to think through some of the, the moral dilemmas that zombies actualize by, by reference to, well, more than 2,000 years of, of philosophical and religious thinking. Well, I sort of approach each of these books from three different perspectives, which is the three different ways that I sort of see the world. I'm a storyteller and a person who studies stories. I'm really interested in culture and the stories that people are drawn to. And 10 years ago, I graduated from seminary and became, for better or worse, a, a sort of professional Christian. So those are our three windows that I seem to employ over and over again when I wrestle with this intersection uh, between narrative and the ways that we understand narrative to make meaning in our lives. The passion that I have for the wisdom tradition approach to this is that it opens up a mythic way of understanding these stories, and so that we are able to look at them not as something ridiculous or part of geek culture, but as stories that address the serious questions that we try and focus on in theology and in philosophy. You know, why are we here? What is a good life? What does a community, a healthy community look like? What should we feel about the future? And one of the central things that I come back to over and over again is a, a statement from the early Christian thinker Irenaeus, who said that the glory of God is the human being fully alive. And that became a kind of I don't know, touch point for me in this whole question about where do we differ from these monsters? And when we're sunk in the consumerism and the mindlessness and the violence, we don't differ from them. But when we seek out community and we try to behave ethically to be the good guys, 
And when we look toward the future, not with dread, but with hope, and I think of hope in a very real sense as a verb, that one doesn't simply hope abstractly that something good will happen in the future, but one works actively toward that, which requires courage and perseverance. And, you know, in both of our countries at this moment, the political system is, is sort of startling in the, in the way that over the last couple of years, our perceptions have changed about it. But, you know, when I look at President Trump, for whom I did not vote, and think about the ways that I want to be in sort of active resistance to the things that he espouses, you really can't do that unless you hope that something better is going to come. Do you think that the zombies are here to stay? Do you think there's something so, to use your word, multivalent about the zombies that they're just, you know, they just serve so many dramatic purposes that they're going to stick around and not be supplanted by, I don't know, werewolves or space aliens? Sort of the comparison that I make here is to superhero films. Year after year after year, critics used to talk about, I can't believe that we are still reviewing superhero films. And what became clear about them is that there is something about those narratives that continues to help people make meaning about the lives that they're living. In the book, I cited a a scientific study, actually it's a study by a mathematician looking at models for epidemic, uh, in which she, uh, she sort of speculated that the zombie film, TV, what have you, uh, epidemic will continue for literally decades. And I think from my own standpoint as a cultural critic, what would have to change for the zombie epidemic to abate is that people would have to come to some more, I don't know, closure or optimism about the state of the world at the moment. Cultural criticism tells us that genres are popular at different times based on how people perceive the world. And so in America, for example, uh, Westerns are popular at times when people feel that the American experiment is going well. And uh, so, for example, during the, the Reagan era, when it was morning in America, there was a resurgence of traditional Westerns. And what we observe sort of in contrast to that is that at times when people feel tension, when polls tell us that the majority of Americans do not feel good about, say, the direction that America is going, then less optimistic genres like gangster films, for example, and zombie narratives become incredibly popular because there are ways for people to sort of grapple with the fact that they don't feel like things are going particularly well in their lives or in the culture around them. What I think would have to change for us to see a significant movement away from the zombie story is for there to be some kind of resolution which does not seem currently possible, at least in, in, in our culture, because we are so sharply divided and uh, because there seems to be contention about the, the simplest matters of government, for example. So I'm, I'm guessing that the zombie story will continue to mutate in order to keep it interesting and uh, to sort of reflect current conditions, sort of like in 28 Days Later, the running zombie changes the way that we we think about that menace. But I don't think any time in the foreseeable future that uh, we are going to see a, a diminution of this narrative because it, it really does serve so many purposes and stand in for so many fears all at once. I was talking to Greg Garrett about his book, Living with the Living Dead, The Wisdom 
of the Zombie Apocalypse, which is available now from Oxford University Press. You can find out more about it on the OUP website. Do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. And if you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you can also catch up on any interviews you missed. There are all sorts of good things coming up in the weeks ahead, including Kate Flint on flash photography, Carrie Brahman on American niceness, Tim Crane on the meaning of belief, and Monica Matfeld and Karen Raber on performing animals. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.